Amen, indeed. Well, are we ready for another one of Zechariah's visions? Please rise as we read God's word from Zechariah 5. Hear the reading of God's word. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in this house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward, The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So far, the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, indeed, thank you for your word. For you have told us that this, your word, will never wither or fade, but it will stand firm and true. So hold that promise true now. Take your words that you've given to us through this vision, through this, your scripture, and bring it to our hearts, to our lives, that we may glorify you and see your grace. In Jesus' strong name, amen. You may be seated. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. William Shakespeare. It's difficult to believe that someone who writes such amazing words and his work spans the times of history could write and think of life in such a dismal way. Yet in some strange way, we know what he's feeling, don't we? We know a bit of this sense of, what's it all for? Why are we here? I don't get it. I'm not quite sure why life is the way it is. This grim view of life that Shakespeare sees and portrays, believe it or not, is not all that much different from that of Scripture. Hang on with me here for a second. For the Bible also sees a sinister view of humanity in and through sin and brokenness. For the Bible sees a world ravaged by a devastating foe of misery and death and sin. A world ravaged by this foe of death. The Bible sees our existence apart from the Lord just as Shakespeare does, hopeless and full of nothing and death. But the difference between Shakespeare and Zechariah and that of the Bible 
or in this sense, this vision is a difference between despair and hope. In Zechariah 5, we come across yet another strange and odd, weird vision that when we first read it, we're like, what? I don't get it. We want to pull our hair out. And we understand why Zechariah asked these questions. Yeah, I see what that is, but I don't understand. It's a basket. It's some ladies with wings, and they're flying, and scrolls, and all of these things. What is happening? And maybe we're not quite sure what to do with all of this. And it's just, again, another strange, intimidating Old Testament story that is reasons why we don't read the Old Testament, because we don't get it. So my hope here this morning and my prayer is, is that although at first glance it might seem that way, that actually is pretty straightforward if we just look at it a little bit closer. Zechariah is acknowledging the reality of who we are and who God is. He's telling us that God is here and with us, that the ultimate difference then between Shakespeare and Bible is hope versus desperation. It's telling us that although Shakespeare viewed our circumstances and our reality as something unescapable, inevitable, that this is just the way life is, Scripture says and acknowledges that life is hard, that it can be maddening, but there's also hope. And here in Zechariah 5, the Lord's telling us something about us, our character, our lives and who we are, but he's also saying as much and more about himself, his character, and who he is. So what is it that he's saying about himself? What is, what is the Lord saying about who he is? First and foremost is that he's shown up. Just as we saw last week, that the Lord's going to leave the light on for us, no matter the situation, he's not going to leave us. He is home and welcoming us into his house. But at the same time, he's saying that he's going to be with us today and tomorrow and forever. But here in Zechariah 5, he's saying this is true because the Lord is righteous. He is able to uphold those promises and he is able to be with us through every circumstance because he's a righteous God. But being a righteous God, there's also something that is important to the story. He's not capable of being in the presence with sin and brokenness. So he's saying something about himself, but he's also saying something about us. And because of this reality, he cannot sit idly by. He can't sit idly by and just watch the world slip away into nothingness as Shakespeare would seem to think. No, he has to, he must do something about the creation and the people that he loves. And the question that we should be asking What then does he do in this vision, which there are three visions, but we need to look at them not as three separate visions, but as one vision as a whole in totality. They are linked together. The Lord tells us what he does about this reality, the reality that we know all too well. The first section of the vision is that the Lord reveals sin. The second then is that he judges sin. And the concluding vision is that he removes sin. And this is only possible because of the righteousness of the Lord. Once again, in order to understand strange visions, we have to understand what's happening. And so before we dive further into Zechariah chapter 5, 
we need to begin to explore a little bit more of what is righteousness and what does it mean that the Lord is righteous. Again, another one of these phrases, terms that we throw out all the time and we just say, yes, the Lord is righteousness and the Lord is righteous and his righteousness is important to me, I think. But how? I'm not really sure I've ever spent much time to think of why it's important and why it is that the Lord is righteousness is righteous. So what is the righteousness of the Lord? The psalmist declares this to us. He uses two words. Sedek and Mishpat are the foundation of God's throne. These are, this is the very foundation of what he is. That he himself, God himself is right. He is just and true. Righteousness is essential to his very being and characterizes all that he does. God is morally and ethically right. He acts only in keeping with what is right and just. And this theme is common throughout Scripture. The judge of all the earth shall do right, according to Genesis 18. He is a righteous judge, 2 Timothy 4. But how then do we understand? That really doesn't solve my situation here, Ryan. How do we understand righteousness or this characteristic of God? Again, these primary words that the Bible uses, again, and then further into the New Testament of diakosune, denote it's a physical sense. What does that mean? It's a physical sense of, of being straight, right? This is, this is how this word or how these words in the original languages want to think of an image of a, of a straight line, of something being straight, or in a moral sense, being right, Right? So a physical, if you have a physical line, it's a, a straight line. If you have a moral line or imaginary line, it's a, a straight moral line. Being right, as one commentator puts it, and so conformity to an ethical or moral standard, being and doing what is right, this is one who is righteous. And one who is righteous lives up to expected obligations. He acts in accordance with what should be done. A righteous man is one who is right and who does what is suitable, one who maintains a right relation with what is expected. I like that quote. One who maintains a right relation with what is expected. This is righteousness. So then, by definition, one who maintains a right relationship with what is expected cannot be in relationship with something or someone who does not maintain a relationship with what is expected. This is the conflict that is happening here in Zechariah chapter 5 and happens in our lives. A righteous God, physically straight, morally straight, ethically straight, cannot be in the presence with curvy lines, broken lines, upended lines, as we've seen over the course of the past few weeks, we understand that the people of Israel had not exactly walked a straight line, whether physically or morally. They were not, we are not. And they had just come out of captivity because they had not walked that line. They've come out of Babylon, and here they walk back into this city of Jerusalem, and they don't see any straight lines anywhere. Everything has been destroyed. It's in ruined, and everything is shattered and broken but let's be drawn back into our lives for a moment. Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, says it's not only the people of Israel that didn't walk straight lines and who are walking through and in and amongst the rubble, but Paul says in this letter to Rome, 
that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Or in other words, what is right. So all includes the people of Israel, the people that Zechariah is prophesying to. All also includes you and me. All includes us. Therefore, the Lord must do something with and for the creation that he loves. He can't sit by and do nothing. He is the one who by definition of character is righteous. Therefore, he must take action. And so we can say that the righteousness of God is not something to fear, but something to be grateful for. Because he doesn't just sit back, but he takes action. But we have a tendency to fear, don't we? We have a tendency to fear his righteousness because we understand that he is righteous, or as we sang this morning, he is holy, and we are not. And what will he do? We understand that he doesn't sit idly by, but he's going to do something. What is that something that he's going to do? His righteousness then drives his actions. It drives his actions of love for people like you and me. It drives his actions of mercy and grace. And then this then is the entirety of Zechariah chapter 5. These visions show us reasons to fear show us reasons to be humble, and also shows us reasons to rejoice. Before the age of internet and video games and all these other things that uh, people play now and do now in their spare time, there was a rite of passage for most boys about 9, 10, 11 years old. That rite of passage was when you were prior to 8 or 9 years old, you had models, plastic models, but they were snap-together models. And they were pretty easy to put together, and you would snap them on, and they would be simple models that were already painted. They had the decals on them already, and you just put them together, and it took about 15 minutes, and life was great, and you had a brand new plastic Chevy Camaro or Firebird Trans or whatever it was, right? Then there's a rite of passage where you're about 9 or 10, and your dad buys you a new model, a glue-together model, where you had to paint it, and you had to put the decals on it, And the first three or four that you did were a sticky, muddy mess of goo and plastic, and they never really worked. But if you did it a little bit more and more, you pretty much were able to get the hang of it. But I remember in particular, I had a model. I don't even remember what kind of car it was, but it was a car, and it was gray plastic. And every cool car is not gray, gunmetal gray plastic. It has to be a cool color, like yellow, right? It had to be. So I was able, my parents bought me a, this model, this glue-together model, and they bought me model paint for the first time, and I was over the moon. I thought it was great. And so put everything out of the table and started to put the model together and got it all finished. And my parents said, well, we can't have the model out in the kitchen or wherever it was. We just, you know, it just needs to go back in your room until you're going to do it again. And so the good rule-following boy that I was, I picked up my stuff and brought it to my room and uh, I followed the, my parents' rules, and I did what was right, and I was flying the straight line. But there's this little jar of yellow paint. One more look. One more look. And I unscrewed the cap, and to this day, I have no idea how. But a half-dollar size of yellow paint blobbed onto the brand-new brown carpet my parents just put in my room. So what's the logical thing to do? 
go and tell your parents, hey, I really messed up and I know I wasn't supposed to open up the paint unless there was newspaper down or something. No, the logical thing that a nine-year-old boy does is take his bathroom mat and put it over the top of the, of the yellow paint. This is what, do not do this, little boys. Placed it over the stain on the carpet. Verses 1 to 4 talk about this very thing, don't they? You see, I, in my mind, as a nine-year-old boy, didn't think anyone would ever find out because there's a bath mat over the top of it. Who's going to ever find out? It's covered. Who's going to figure it out? Until someone decided they were going to vacuum the room. It wasn't me because I knew where the stain was, and you don't lift up the rug. I remember my parents being very upset with me for when either my mother or father up picked up the mat, there was this half-dollar-sized yellow stain. My sin, my error, my lack of judgment in so many ways was revealed for everyone to see. A yellow blotch of paint and brand new brown carpet. Verses 1 to 4 talk about that yellow stain. They talk about that stain, not on brown carpet, but on a scroll. A scroll that is laid out before everyone to see. A scroll that is a very big scroll. The dimensions, it says, is 20 cubits by 10 cubits. Hmm, why does it give us that information? It's the exact same dimensions of the Holy of Holies. Just a little bit of free information for you. On this scroll are written two parts of the Ten Commandments. One is, don't lie. The other one is, don't steal. And those that lie and those that steal, guess what? They will be found out. You can't put a bath mat over the top of it. You will be found out. It's going to go into the houses. It's going to go into the homes of the thief and into the liar. The Lord knows and will find out the sin, and he will see the yellow stain. Those that steal and those that lie will be cleaned out, according to Zechariah 5. The Lord will expose the liar. He will expose the thief. But why? A scroll. When Zechariah saw a scroll, it had to be a dreadful sight. For he knew the history of his people, and he knew the significance of a scroll. For the Lord had told the prophet Jeremiah to show Jehoiakim a scroll to show him the king of his impending doom because of his sin. In Jeremiah chapter 6, we'll go read about a scroll in Jeremiah 6. And the Lord also showed Ezekiel in his opening vision a scroll that had written on it the words of lamentation and woe of mourning. This was a devastating sight for the scroll of the scroll, for it meant disaster for God's people. This is what Ezekiel saw. This is what Jeremiah sees or saw. And now this is what Zechariah sees, another scroll with lies and thieves written upon it. The scroll shows that it will go throughout the land and it will find the liar and it will find the thief. There is nothing to do that you can do to escape from the righteousness of the Lord. Solomon warns us to that end in Ecclesiastes that God will bring every deed into judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil, the scroll with its dimensions of the Holy of Holies, which bears God's law, as, as one commentator puts, up, puts it, reminding us that what determines sin is God's revelation. We are not the ones who create moral reality. As, try, as, as hard as we try, we cannot revise a moral truth by deciding for ourselves what is right 
and wrong. The scroll goes forth with God's law, not with my opinion or yours, but God's law written on it. And how then does this speak so loudly into our age of relativism where my opinion matters more than your opinion just because it's my opinion? My truth is my truth and your truth can be your truth and it doesn't really matter as long as it's not you don't put your truth on my truth. What's right and wrong is defined by two simple statements here. Love God on one side of the scroll as it says. Love others on the other side of the scroll. This is truth. The scroll has revealed our sin and the fact that we have not done that. We have lied. All of us. We have stolen. All of us. The scroll has revealed the sin of the people of Israel and it's revealed our sins. And so we, like that nine-year-old boy who's been found out, should feel the weight of that guilt. Should understand that there is a punishment, a judgment, because of the righteousness of the Lord, of the parents, is coming. I knew it. I knew that I messed up. I knew there was something coming. And I was fearful of what my punishment was going to be. And the Lord says, this scroll will go into every house and it will find it out. There's nothing that we can escape from. Friends, and this is not just a call to the people of Israel, it's a call to us and to our lives as well. The call is love God. The call is love others. How? Above yourself. Think of God and think of others before ourselves. Love your neighbor above all else. Love God above all else. This then is how we are to live in the land that God has given to us. I was grounded. I believe the model and the paints were taken away from me, and I don't remember for how long, but they were certainly taken away. I couldn't play with my friends. I couldn't ride my bike. I could be mistaken about the exact, the exact punishment, but judgment came down. It came down. Maybe not as severe as what I maybe should have gotten, but it happened. Punishment happened for me. But I think perhaps the punishment of my parents being just mad at me the way they were was punishment enough. But I was guilty. I did it. I covered it up. But I was also ashamed. The second part of Zechariah's vision is that God and his righteousness does not let sin go unpunished. It will be judged. It will be dealt with because he is a righteous God. There is a price to pay. A basket now is going out into the land that is shown to Zechariah. And Zechariah, like you and I, asks, what is that? And of course, again, he knows it's a basket. But he asks, I don't understand. Why are you giving me the sight of a basket? I don't get it. The angel said, this is the iniquity or the sin or the yellow stain on the brown carpet. When a righteous God looks upon the state of creation, he sees and understands the yellow stain. When, you, when my mom or my dad lifted up that mat and saw a yellow stain, there was no denying it. Something had to be done. It was revealed and something had to take place because now there is a stain on fresh new carpet and judgment has to come. 
There's no way to get past the stark contrast between the yellow and the brown. There's no way to get past the stark contrast between holy and unholy, righteous and unrighteous. So at the very outset, the righteousness of God is set out to, to judge and to stamp out the ugly stain of sin and brokenness in the world. In this vision of Zechariah, the figure of the woman, we are told is that of iniquity. We see it at the moment of recognition that iniquity is, is what? She's shoved back down into the basket. Can you just picture this scene? Here's a basket and a woman pops up and someone just pushes her back down into the basket. And then what happens? There's a lid that's slammed, a heavy leaden lid, a metal, thick metal lead lid is then slammed on top of her head. Stay in the basket. You cannot come out. This is your punishment. This is the righteous God judging the iniquity and not allowing literally to rear its head. The Lord will have his day over sin, sorrow, iniquity, and death. In his judgment upon sin, the Lord is going to place another lid on another basket. He places not only a lid upon the head of a woman, but he places a lid upon his own son. There's a stain of sin, a crimson stain over the white freshness of creation, and Jesus takes on that sin. Jesus in his death took on our iniquity. He took on our sin more than that, as we're told in 2 Corinthians 5. We are told not only did he take it upon himself, but he actually became the iniquity. He became the yellow stain, and he suffered the judgment that the Lord must place on iniquity. He became it. He suffered it, and he died on the cross because of it. And then in an act of unimaginable love and grace, our Lord and Savior who became sin and died in my place was placed in a tomb. He was shoved into a tomb. And a rock was rolled over the top. Judgment was cast. A lid was rolled over the entrance to the tomb. The Lord had cast his judgment and placed it upon the head of Jesus and not on me. And the lid was closed on sin and death. Now I asked my father if he remembered this event. He said no, (laughs) thankfully. It was traumatic in my life, but not in his. But I asked him the question, how did you take that stain out of the carpet? And he said, I don't remember. I said, well, don't you think you probably got like a rug doctor or a steam cleaner to come and take it out? He said, yeah, probably. So that's the story we'll go with, right? So they rented, my parents rented this steam cleaner, right? With a little bit of soap and a little bit of hot water and a little bit of elbow grease and a few dollars spent on a rental uh, steam cleaner. They ran it over the yellow stain on a brown carpet and the stain was gone. There's no more yellow stain in this new carpet. What a relief. What a relief. Because the spot was real. There was really a yellow stain. The punishment was real. I really got in trouble. My parents were really mad at me, I think, even though my dad doesn't remember being mad at me. But the removal of that stain was also very real. But how we forget the end of things, don't we? If you're anything like me, we tend to think of the act of spilling the paint 
and we focus on that. I'm so terrible. I'm so awful. How could I be so stupid? My parents told me not to open the, the model paint, but I did it anyway. And now there's this yellow stain. And in my mind, the best thing to do was to cover it up. And how often do we do this very same thing? And we focus on that. And we get bogged down by that. But perhaps we move past that for a little bit and we know that there's something coming. I've been caught and now I'm going to reel back and I'm going to try to cover up more and not confess more. I'm just, when the punishment's coming and then we, we get full of anxiety and dread and when we wonder what's going to happen and what's the punishment going to be, how are they going to love me? Will they still call me their son? All of these things, right? And if we don't focus on the act, we focus on the punishment. And our minds and our lives get bogged down in the intricacies of the brokenness and the hurt and the pain, the guilt and the shame. And we forget there's one more vision. It's the one I think that perhaps we overlook and we don't spend much time on because the first two have taken a hold of us. In this scene, the basket in which the iniquity was placed and the lid was put on top, two other women come and they have wings and they're told they have wings like a stork. I don't know the significance of stork's wings, but they come and they pick up this basket and they, they fly and they carry it away. And Zechariah asked the right question, the question that I would ask of the, of the, of the angel who was showing me these things. Um... Where are they taking that basket? Where are they taking it? And the angel says, well, they're taking it to Shinar. Okay, that doesn't help. What is Shinar? Shinar is vernacular for those times of Babylon. Oh, now it's beginning to click. Now things are starting to... So Babylon, they just come from Babylon, right? They just escaped Babylon. But, now, but, but then and even now, the reference of Babylon is to what? Even if we were to say Babylon... The thing that comes into our brain is what? Sin and evil, debauchery, all of these things, death and misery. This is what we think of Babylon when we say those words. And so what the angel is saying is that now this basket full of iniquity whose lid has been placed on top is being taken away and brought back to where it came from, back to Babylon. It's being taken care of. The Lord, as a righteous God, cannot leave his creation and those whom he loves to perish. And he has shown that to us through the sacrifice of his own Son, our Savior Jesus Christ. But to finally complete this process of this amazing grace, this sin, this stain, must be removed altogether because a righteous God can't have that stain with his existence. It has to be clean. We have to be clean to exist. And so the conclusion of this vision gives us this picture of sin being removed, of sin being taken away back to where it came from. And there it says it will make a house. Why does it tell us that? Well, for a people that have been nomadic, people know what it means to be transient, to moving all the time. 
you don't build a house unless you know you're going to stay there for quite a while because it takes resources and time that you normally don't have. But there, sin will go back to Babylon and it will set up shop. It will not wander around like the scroll. It will not move around. It will not go from house to house looking for someone to trample. No, it will set up a foundation back to where it came from. It will have a permanent structure, a house where it will reside forever. It cannot come back. On the day of the Lord Jesus' second return, evil will ultimately be carried away. It will not be able to touch you. It will not be able to impact you. But the encouragement for us then today is that there is a lid on iniquity. And the Lord holds the handle for that lid. Iniquity, sin, brokenness has no real hold on you. The Lord understands it and He will place the lid back on and it cannot ultimately harm you. Friends, the stain is real. The judgment is real. But the freedom is also real. The fact that in the person and work of Jesus Christ, He has taken on sin. He became sin. And He's removed it. And we're washed white as snow. For the righteousness of God demands that you, the ones He loves, be clean. Why? Because His love, His grace, His mercy, His righteousness is given to us through the work of Jesus Christ. Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection not only removes the sin, but actually, He says in 2 Corinthians 5, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What does that mean? Not only is the stain removed and sent back to where it came from, but the righteousness, the holiness of God through Jesus Christ is given to you. And so when the Lord looks at you, He doesn't see the yellow stain. He doesn't see the punishment. What He sees is His Son, Jesus Christ. And that righteousness, that holiness, that perfection is now yours. This then is our reality that we have here and now today. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for how you love us, for your righteousness, for your holiness, and how you've taken away sin and death and sorrow. So give us this hope. Give us this grace. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.